Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. A new study suggests that people go to the ER perhaps just because they can. Uh, wait times in Winnipeg are some of the highest in the country. Keith in the University of Manitoba was in charged with entrusted charged with the idea of figuring out why this is. Yeah, so they, they looked at a 10-year period, 2003 to 2013. For starters, more people are going to the ER than they did 10 years ago. That number's up. It's about 600 people on any given day in Winnipeg uh, show up at the emergency room. The average wait time, according to this study, and there's been a whole bunch of studies, we all know this problem is not new, uh, is about five hours. And there are a couple key findings to this, guys. One you mentioned, Greg, is that there's still that problem where people who don't really need to be at the emergency room, and we're not blaming them for it, but whether it takes the advice of a doctor or they thought that what they had was more serious for whatever reason, they don't need to be there. Only 1% of visits on an average day, so that's 600 people, so 1% are of a very high urgency, meaning something like, you can't breathe, you're having really sharp pains like a heart attack, a life or death situation. 1% of those 600 people. About 15% are a high urgency, and then the other 80-odd percent are medium to low urgency. So people that, let's face it, probably really didn't have to be in the emergency room. The other finding is that it's actually the testing that goes on at the hospital. So whether you need a urine test or an x-ray or a CT scan for what you show up for, it's actually the testing that's the main reason the works are being gummed up, that people are having to wait a long time between the doctor deciding what test to order and getting the results back and getting the test done. Is there someone who can do the test at the x-ray machine and then interpreting those results Most times it has to be done. It's important stuff. But the study found that is actually a bigger factor in the long wait times than, say, how many other people are around you in that crowded waiting room or how many beds might be available in the emergency department. It's actually the testing that's really holding things up and creating these super long waits for people. There has been an interpretation of these statistics and a perception, I think, for a long time that the big backlog is associated with the lack of hospital beds themselves. And governments love to make these announcements. We're going to end hallway medicine, right? We've heard that one in Manitoba. And we're, we're going to add more beds to Health Sciences Center or St. Boniface Hospital. Uh, and that's important. You need to obviously have the space. But this study is t- kind of taking a different view that maybe a streamlining of the testing process um, new guidelines for when a test is ordered, because you never want to not order a test. And then it turns out that the person needed the test and could have been sick. You would never want that, right? So, And then it goes to a review that's being done by the province of what's going to happen with our different hospitals. Do they all need a true emergency room? Could some of them take on some of these less urgent patients? And then you have only one, two, three of the emergency rooms that do this kind of testing and deal with the really, really serious people. It's a convoluted issue, but it feels like we're getting towards a point where, I don't want to call it a breaking point, but a point where some actual tangible changes might be coming to the system in Manitoba. Have they actually suggested some ways to fix this, or is this just an analysis of the problem? This study is just an analysis of the problem. Now, we did get a chance to talk to some folks from the WRHA emergency department there, and they are looking at 
you know, early days, but ways to streamline that testing process, get better equipment in our hospitals. Look, they've tried ways, right? They've tried these quick care clinics to get people out of the emergency room and into other places, but they're not always open when you need. They're not always staffed when you need. And for whatever reason, whether it's people who are socially disadvantaged, don't have another place to go, people keep showing up in the emergency room. So, you know, we're always good at finding the problems here, but it's finding the solutions now moving forward that we're going to have to start doing because we do have in in Winnipeg and in Manitoba some of the, if not the very longest ER wait times in Canada. Richard Cloutier joining the conversation now. Well, and this goes hand in hand with what the provincial government just announced today, budget day on April 11th. It goes hand in hand with a story we did about a month ago on the Peachy report that looked at, this was done by the previous government, that looked at the entire hospital system here and recommended essentially keeping Health Sciences Centre, St. Boniface Hospital as big teaching hospitals, pick a third hospital, and then um, downgrade or repurpose the other three hospitals. There's a reason why these reports are all being released now. Keith's assessment here and what they're doing is bang on. But the next piece of the puzzle will be in the budget. That's why I've said, guys, that this is a one in a 25-year budget coming on the 11th of April. The finance minister confirming that today. We'll have more coming up on uh, Global News here on 680 CJOB. What does that mean, one in 25-year budget? One in 25-year budget means some of the fundamental decisions made by government. Um, that will be landmark. This is going to be the one that shifts from generational. the old, the old NDP government to this new... Very generational changes. So, and I'm suggesting to you that this government has the opportunity to repurpose three hospitals in Winnipeg. Can you imagine the, 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 the outpour of... Uh, and I'm not saying they've made that final decision yet, but if you start talking about closing emergency rooms and repurposing hospitals, what sort of backlash that will have. Uh, use an example, and, and, and I know we're tight on time here, and, and we'll have more coming up on the news, but I use an example of how sometimes nurses can play the system. And the Winnipeg Health Region... You're talking about full-time versus part-time, part-time and vacation days and all that sort of stuff, right? So, for example, and I think everybody can understand this, if you're a .6 or a .8 nurse at Concordia Hospital, you can actually call in sick and you can pick up a shift at Health Sciences Center, get paid for the Health Sciences Center shift, and you can also get paid for that sick time that you've called in for at the conch. Come on, Richard, that doesn't happen. It happens all the time. And those are some of the examples that we are seeing and that government is starting to discover in a lot of these reports, that there's so much duplication. There are people playing the system. It doesn't happen for full-time employees. It does happen for part-time employees. There's all sorts of examples on the labor relations side on this. But, Brett, you ask a great question. One in 25-year budget. This is going to be one of those budgets that, for taxpayers, it's going to fundamentally change this province. Richard Cloutier, coming up between 4 and 7 with Julie Buckingham and the news and Global's Keith McCullough. Keith, what's next? Is there another set of findings attached to this research that we're going to be privy to or 
What, what, what's happening now? It goes forward to the frontline workers like Richard was describing, the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority, the provincial government, to look for what do we do now. But as Richard quite rightly points out, I think it's all tied together with money, right? There's a perfect world, and then there's what we can afford and what we're going to do. A lot will be revealed tied to this, tied to really everything, education, all the money we spend in our province. I think a lot of that will be revealed when that progressive conservative budget comes out. You heard Keith McCullough and Richard Cluche during the discussion about this latest report on wait times at emergency rooms around Winnipeg at hospitals and the fact that it's diagnostic testing that is gumming up the works and that as few as 1% of the 600 people that attend Winnipeg emergency rooms every day are actually in distress to the point where we call it a serious or life-threatening situation. We want to get your take on what should change and what could fix this absolute epidemic. We've been talking about this for decades, the fact that ER times uh, are lengthy and some of the longest in the country. Brett? Hello, Mark. What do you have to say? I think there's other ways to fix this. Uh, first of all, I think there's already short resources for nurses. I, my wife is a nurse, and it, uh, when she's working an eight-hour shift, she can be mandated to work 16 hours during her shift, and she didn't even know about that when she started her shift. So e- work for ER nurses full-time who actually work hard. Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for them. And, I, and uh, in terms of the part-time problem where you can call in sick and work elsewhere, there's no reason why a digital system can't fix that. Now, uh, and, and for the ERs, we should probably start finding people who are addicted to heroin or addicted to morphine or are just want attention, have some psychological disorders. We should find certain people for coming in when it's not, in, in fact, an emergency and only accept people with heart conditions or, you know, heart attacks, very life-threatening situations. I think there's other ways to go about this than cut uh, ER resources because, uh, for example, the Victoria Hospital serves south end of the city. It also serves St. Adolphe and LaSalle. And uh, I don't think we're in a position where we can just start axing ERs like that. Mark, uh, sorry, was it, you said it was your wife was a nurse? Yeah. Now, when she has to work those 16-hour days, how is she at her job? I like Because I have never understood how nurses and doctors are mandated to work 16 to 24-hour days. I think that's insane. It's ridiculous, and she admits that, you know, she tries her best to, to take breaks when she can and stay alert, but she does admit that it's dangerous and that needs to be changed. That's a great point, Mark. Dangerous. You know, if she's yeah, looking absolutely. after, she's trying to keep, I mean, in an extreme position, if she's in charge of trying to keep somebody alive, yeah, dangerous is a great word. And also for her as well, if she's just for her health. Well, without question, Mark, you did acknowledge the fact uh, that Richard brought up with regard to uh, people with part-time positions and uh, Richard call it playing the system. This happens, doesn't it? Yeah, I've I have heard about that. I mean, I don't have evidence, but yeah, like th- there's definitely crap like that th- that goes on inefficiencies and uh, loopholes that we need to close. But I think we also should hire more nurses and take away those inefficiencies. I think we can save a lot of money just by closing doors like that where people can take advantage of the system.
Mark. Right, Mark, thank you very much for the call. We have a text here. This is in reference to something that was mentioned in our previous segment. The closing of any quick care clinics would be horrible. People don't know about them, and that is a serious problem. I've been to three of them, and I have never spent more than 15 minutes in the waiting room, and I'm typically out very fast. I think everybody associates these quick care clinics with walk-in clinics, and they are far from the same. And I think maybe that's part of the problem, Greg. Maybe it's just education, because when you, when you, with this particular comparison, I actually couldn't identify the difference off the top of my head, what the difference is between a walk-in and a quick care clinic. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. There's uh, one apparently in my neighborhood, and I thought it was more of an administration building than anything else. I didn't realize that it was a frontline medical service. Maybe some education on these things would be a great idea. It's a conversation that doesn't seem to change very much, Brett. ER wait times, emergency rooms in Winnipeg, some of the longest wait times in the country. University of Manitoba was charged with delving into this. They've done a study, and that study was released today. The information tells us that of the 600 or so daily emergency room visits, 1% can be classified as life-threatening situations. And the fact that it's diagnostic services that really gum up the works In terms of the system, for a long time, we've been under the impression that it was beds, a lack of beds, and kind of a cascading effect of a lack of beds on wards that were tying up emergency room beds. Uh, That may be part of the problem, but not the largest problem. Quick care clinics. Better execution, better use of those, Brett, seemed to be something that people would like to see including the idea of shuttling low-risk patients to the quick care clinics. It's a text at 780-6868, or just tell them that's where they go. People will learn about them. And Greg, we'll get to you momentarily. Roma has been waiting just a little bit longer. So, Roma, thank you for your patience. We'll start with you. What do you have to say? Well, in, in September, for the first time in my life, and I'm 58 years old, first time in my life, I didn't have a family doctor. My family doctor just up and quit out of the blue. And I had no idea it was so hard to get another family doctor. It was almost impossible. It took me months. I am disabled. I am quite sick. I need a doctor. I asked my social worker for some help as a patient advocate kind of help. And he said, well, go to this Access Winnipeg Clinic. It's right beside the Grace Hospital. Go to Access Winnipeg Clinic and they will help you. Well, I went there. And it's nurse practitioners, mainly nurse practitioners. There are doctors there, too. I said to them, I, it took me four months of arguing with them. I said to them, I need a doctor. I need, and they, every time I had an appointment, I'd be sitting across the desk from a nurse practitioner who would tell me, I cannot fill prescriptions. I cannot, I cannot fill out forms. I cannot do the things that I needed to have a doctor for. They said, you need a doctor for that. And I said, yes, I know. That's why I keep on asking for a doctor. Why do they keep on sending me to a nurse practitioner? Well, I know this. After four months of arguing with them, I finally got a family doctor. In the meantime, I was repeatedly told to go to the emergency room. And 58 years old, I'm not a stupid person. When when I was told to go to an emergency room, when I knew darn well all I had to do was get my prescription refilled by a family doctor, I knew it was stupid. But that's what I was told. You I had know, no choice. 
Uh, Roma, I wonder if it's about coordination and using technology efficiently. I love the idea of shuttling low-risk patients to the quick care clinics. It's something that I've thought about for some time, that, that maybe the triage nurses could have a little bit more power. I know it feels as though they have a ton of power in the ER already in terms of deciding who gets in first. But what about something uh, like a system where we know that there is a doctor in the area that can't see you maybe right now, but could see you tomorrow morning. And here's an appointment and coordinate these things with the technology we have. You have to imagine it would be a fairly simple system to coordinate and and develop. Or give the nurse practitioners a little more responsibility and Mm -hmm. allow them to refill an existing prescription, allow them to fill out an easy form. They could do it. They could do it, but they're not allowed to. So let them, and then that would solve a bit of a problem. Roma, thank you very much. Appreciate your call. Hey, Greg, uh, I understand you're a nurse. Yes, I am. So what do you have to say about this, Greg? Well, I just have trouble believing that a nurse would risk his or her job calling it in sick at one institution and then going to work at another for the same shift. They could get into so much trouble on, with the nurses board and everything, but I, I just can't believe it. I really think you should check your, I mean, just because somebody said that, I, I have trouble believing that. I mean, maybe it happens infrequently, but those people should lose their jobs, actually. Well, I got a, a tweet, actually, uh, tweeted to me from David. His name is Ramparts1 on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle, at GMAC Winnipeg, says, uh, Greg, re-nurses calling in sick and double dipping. How is that not fraud? Yeah, it is. It, it is, and it's unethical, immoral, and illegal, and they would lose their jobs. Okay, so well. So I just can't see that anybody would want to risk that for an extra shift. Greg, how long have you been a nurse? Uh, only about 10 years. Well, that's a long enough time. Do you see situations that have you scratching your head when you're on the job? Well, I guess the major situation is people getting mandated because we are short and you end up having to work a, a 12 or 16 hour shift. And, and when we, we look at that and we see that, geez, if you just hire some more nurses, casual nurses to fill those positions um, and then not have these people having to work 12 or 16 hour shifts. I mean, I think that would solve a lot of the problem. Greg, I want you to hang on here. Richard Cluches popped back into the studio. You heard your comments uh, suggesting that, that, you know, this isn't something that, that takes place. It or- absolutely happens. And I've seen the reports and I've talked to people and I've asked them to come on air with us at Global News and 680 CJOB. And they've looked at me and said, are you kidding? I don't want to lose my job. The problem is, is the labor contracts. And that's why you're seeing this government wanting to streamline some of the labor contracts. Most, if most nurses I know wouldn't do something like this. And I'm not saying the system is rampant like uh, with this. But what I am saying is that there are examples of how this is done, and this is done legally. This can be done, and you can double dip. And one of the problems with healthcare, and I'm going to just lay it on the line for you, is that there, we know a lot of people that like the 0.6.8 shifts because of the whole idea that they can have control over their lives and take shifts and pick up shifts where they can. 
And you know very very well that sometimes people are working 10 and 16 hours because they do doubles, because they know the system is short at times, and they love doing doubles for the overtime that they get. So the reality is, yes, you have to hire more nurses, but you have to have contracts in place that the system can run the system, that the administrators are controlling the system, not the people, not, not the inmates running the asylum, if you will. Now, again... I'm being provocative here, and I think most people within the system are respectful, but at times we've seen over the last 25 years in Winnipeg that there are nurses that run the system and that dictate the system when it comes to, uh, when it comes to shifting. And what this government is saying is that's about to change. Craig, have you got a response to Richard's suggestions? If, if that's happening, where a nurse is calling in, sh- in sick at one institution and then going to work at another, that nurse should lose their job. Greg, thank you very much. Richard, thank you as well for this continuing dialogue right here on 680 CJOB. Hey, Ian, what do you have to say? Hi, I just was listening to your uh, previous caller, the, the lady who was in her mid-50s or something. Um, just to correct a little bit of misinformation, nurse practitioners absolutely can write refill prescriptions at any point in time and can write prescriptions for new medications if they wish to. I'm not sure what her experience was that, that she didn't encounter a, a nurse practitioner who could or was willing to write her prescription. They very well can. Um, but the point she made about forms is absolutely true. And this is part of the insurance industry's issue. The insurance industry fails to recognize the validity of a nurse practitioner, and therefore many of the things that people need from a primary care perspective must be done by a doctor only because the insurance industry is dragging its heels. And they need to get with the times, recognize the validity of a nurse practitioner, and allow the nurse practitioners to do those functions. And then that'll take some of the burden off the need for a physician. And then when you mentioned before about about um, you know patients going to the emergency room and and going there for minor issues and and balancing that against the resources that we have, this has been always an issue is that there's this big disparity between what people expect to receive, what they want to receive in this McDonald's philosophy of life that we have, and what the resources can provide. And the only way out of that is to either change people's perspective on what they should be getting, or supply the system well enough with enough people, enough resources, enough diagnostics, uh, et cetera, that those unrealistic expectations can then be met. I think you know which way we're leaning on this one, right, Ian? The the, yep. the former yep. position on that because the resources are extremely expensive. Exactly. And in order for people to get what they expect, uh, I think generally we have unrealistic expectations of what the system should be providing. Very true. Ian, thank you for your input on that. Greatly appreciated. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There is a text here at 204-780-6868, and this is in reference to a call we took earlier from somebody named Mark who suggested that people who visit emergency rooms and maybe are not in an emergency situation should be fined, at least repeat offenders. But the text says, Mark, don't listen to him. Only emergency if you're dying? Are you kidding? If my son breaks his arm and is screaming in pain, that's an emergency. And so are a lot of others besides the fact that you are dying. Thank you for that text. This text sort of reminds me of a situation I encountered when I was a teenager. I sprained my ankle really bad in basketball practice and I eventually had to go. I started at the doctor at just at a walk-in clinic because I could still, you I could, could still, still walk. I, I, I'm just sorry. I'm just getting flooded with memories here. I tore it 
really bad. Like you, people could hear it. It's it's amazing. I didn't break it because what happened was my my ankle and it was like a ninety full perfect ninety degree angle. Mm-hmm. It hurt. It hurt a lot. I was about four, fifteen years old, I think. But then I started walking around on it because I had never hurt myself badly. You know, everybody sprains her ankle and it hurts for a minute or two, and eventually you walk you walk it off. So that's what I tried to do. I tried to walk it off. Sure well, you did. It swelled up. Like imagine if you took your sock, uh, took a sock, wrapped it around your ankle, and then put another sock over top of that. It would be really bulgy. That's what my ankle looked like. So I could walk on it. So people were saying, "You should probably get that checked out." Because I couldn't feel anything at this point. It was, I guess, it was numb. Went to a walk-in clinic, and even the doctor says, "How the hell are you walking right now?" You're Superman. You you're need, not the Hulk. You're Superman. He said, you need to go to the hospital. So they sent me off to Concordia. It wasn't an emergency, but it had to be taken care of, and there was nowhere else to go. So they sent me to the hospital. So I often wonder if there if there's a missing layer. I know we have so many layers of bureaucracy, but is there a missing layer of care? That I know that these quick care clinics were meant to take care of some of that, but none of them, I don't think, and maybe we need to do some homework on this, can do cast setting, can do x-rays, could take care of something like that. You, you would probably still, to this very day, have to go to a hospital for that sort of care. Uh, but we can ask those questions. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling, we are talking about emergency room situations. And the news today, there's a report that was a you know, study from the University of Manitoba that suggests the number of people waiting is not the biggest factor impacting ER wait times. It's the time taken up on doing tests on patients. Also coming out of this study is that 1% of visits, 1% are of the most urgent need. So if you are in a, a full-on emergency situation that maybe you are at risk of dying or you are dying, that's 1%, and then 15% are considered of high urgency. And we've been talking about quick care clinics and walk-in clinics, and quick care clinics are something relatively new. I just told my story about uh, how I sprained my ankle as a teenager playing basketball, and maybe a quick care clinic would be able to take care of that. I actually don't know. If you go to their website, for example on the uh, the quick care clinics on the provincial website it simply says that quick care clinics are there to meet your unexpected health care needs even when some other clinics may be closed they're staffed by nurse nurse practitioners and registered nurses who can help prevent diagnose and treat minor health issues so i would describe a sprained ankle as a minor health issue can they set a cast there i don't know uh, but a lot of them are closed after 7:30 so that basically leaves you with either the emergency room or what i guess the urgent care at the Misericordia. Which I endorse. I've had to use urgent care at Misericordia a couple of times, not only for myself, but for, for Jackie in particular before she got mar- we got married. She had a kidney infection that they diagnosed quite quickly and took action. And I had a situation where I couldn't walk. I was doing renovations at the house. I thought, geez, did I step on a ladder wrong? I wasn't exactly sure, but my left foot was not working at all. Happened to have some crutches in the garage. Went to Pan Am Clinic, no chance of getting in there. So I went to urgent care at Misericordia because I figured for sure I'd strained a tendon or something in my foot. And the triage nurse asked me, what do you think you did, Greg? And I told her that I thought that I had maybe stepped on the rung of a ladder incorrectly, maybe, you know, strained something in my foot. Sent me for an x-ray, 
before I even saw the doctor. And I thought, wow, this is a really unique way about going things, right? Because typically you wait for the doctor, then the doctor sends you for your diagnostic test, and then you go and you wait there, and then you have your test, and they give you the results. And the change in order of operation was fantastic. Guess what? My x-ray was ready when my doctor or the doctor at urgent care was ready to see me. I thought it was outstanding. Um, Another issue that we've been talking about Brett is the idea of nurses manipulating the schedule mm. based on their availability, right? Versus for full time versus part time, and here's one, guys. Not only point six and point eight nurses, lots of nurses only hold point two and point four because they don't have to hold full time because they get full time hours anyway, and then they manage to manipulate the schedule to their advantage. Uh, that last part is my. Summation. Can I just, uh, not what we got at seven eight zero six eight six eight. This talk of point six and point eight. And yes. Forgive me. I I. What does that mean? Okay. So you're if you're a point six, let's say you're obligated to work. You have to work a minimum of twenty five hours a week. Okay. You're not a full time employee, right? Mm. So which means when you're, you know what happens here, if you're a full-time employee, you work when they flip and tell you to work, right? (laughs) When you're part-time, your rights as a worker are much different. Mm. You can kind of write your own schedule. I'm sorry, I'm not available for that. Uh, Here's my, I'm going to school so I can work this day, that day. And they really are obligated by law to write the schedule around your availability. And that's one of the ways that, uh, it's been suggested nurses uh, control their own schedules versus going blanket full time. Okay, thank you for that. Appreciate the the summary there. Um, one text here from Brian says my girlfriend had to wait eight hours at the hospital for four stitches. I wanted to drive her to Steinbeck as I know the wait is way less. Uh, she would let me. She would let me try a vet. Is that what, am I reading that correctly? She oh. would let me try a vet or, you know what, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have started reading that text. It's okay. I'm because gonna, it's kind of gobbledygooky, I think. Well, I think uh, sometimes Siri takes over. Uh, how come quick care clinics aren't located in the hospitals next to or close to the emergency? That from Fred, uh, something that I've suggested. The one in St. Boniface is very close on Marion, uh, in between in between Marion and Goulet, I think it's one block from Taché. So it is close to St. Boniface Hospital there for sure. So thank you very much for your feedback. People are very interested in food nowadays. People who don't even cook watch cooking shows. And everyone has an opinion on what you should and shouldn't be putting into your body. Lately, I don't know if it's just here in L.A., but people are very anti-gluten, which bothers me because I'm very pro-pizza, and you can't be... <laughs> pro-pizza and anti-gluten. So uh, now some people can't eat gluten for medical reasons, which that I get. I, it annoys me, but I get it. But a lot of people here don't eat gluten because like uh, someone in their yoga class told them not to. I keep asking people about this and I started to wonder how many of these people even know what gluten is. So we decided to find out gluten, in case you didn't know, and I didn't know this, is a mixture of two proteins found in wheat and some other natural grains. But here in L.A., it's comparable to Satanism. It's, it's... So we sent a camera crew out to a popular exercise spot right up the street from us to ask people who are gluten-free a simple question. What is gluten? What is this thing you will not eat? So we're going to meet a person who doesn't eat gluten, and together we're going to guess if they know what gluten is. Are you ready? Yeah. Uh, what else do you have to do? 
Do you maintain a gluten-free diet? I do indeed. And what is gluten? Okay, does he know what gluten is? No! Oh, everyone says no. Well, as far as for me, how it affects my body, uh... But what, but what is gluten? Oh, that, this is pretty sad, because I don't know. And I would suggest that gentleman is in the majority. And in order to clarify all the things Jimmy Kimmel outlined in that rant, in that dialogue, we have welcoming or we're welcoming into the studio Shelly Case. She's a registered dietitian and she's an author and she's joining us, as I mentioned, right here in studio. Welcome back to Winnipeg, Shelly. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on the show today. It's it's uh, one of these topics really that it's trendy in terms of health and fitness. But there's a very serious uh, disease associated with the body's intolerance to gluten. So why don't we talk about what is gluten first and foremost? Well, gluten is actually a general name for a group of proteins found in the grains wheat, rye, and barley. So Jimmy actually had it right. He did, yes. The, the first part. The first part. Now, how do they interact? With, what, what do they do uh, with each other? And what can they do with our body that can cause us issues? Well, if you have celiac disease, which is a serious autoimmune disorder that affects about one in a hundred people, for people with celiac disease, if they eat gluten, anything with wheat, rye, or barley, it damages the lining of the small intestinal tract. There are these things called little villi, and that's where you absorb your vitamins and minerals. And so if you eat the gluten, it damages it, so you're unable to absorb these nutrients properly, especially iron, calcium, and vitamin D, so that if you don't absorb your iron, you become anemic. If you don't get your calcium and vitamin D, you can start having bone problems, osteoporosis, uh, fractures. So it's key that people with celiac disease strictly avoid all forms of wheat, rye, and barley. If you, let's say, for example, um, you didn't know I mean, I don't know what celiac disease is, so maybe that's another question. But it, let's say you, you didn't really know uh, that you were eating something with gluten. Would you be able to, to feel that symptom immediately? Or Well, it's interesting with this disease. For some people, just a few crumbs, like if you served a salad and you put a, the croutons on and they picked them off and the little crumbs went into the salad, some people can get really, really sick very quickly and be running to the bathroom in a couple hours and not feeling well. And I had a client once who he said, I don't know, I have to follow this diet. I know I'm celiac, the test were positive, but I have beer and pizza and I don't get any reactions. And I had to explain to him, even though you're maybe not having any symptoms outwardly, you are damaging the intestinal tract and it's because it's autoimmune, it causes other reactions in the body and it can lead to some serious complications, including cancer of the gut, lymphoma. You had an interesting experience with a caller in a similar situation to what we have right now. Yes, I had a lady phone in and she said, I'm so glad you're talking about celiac disease and letting people know what the symptoms are and how to get diagnosed because I lost my husband to lymphoma and she had talked about how they had gone to many doctors for many, many different years and nobody figured it out until it was too late. That's a a tragic story. So uh, some of the things that I've read that the amount of time from the beginning of diagnosis or even an inquiry from a patient to confirmation of celiac can be extremely long, actually shockingly long. Yes, we did a a study with the Canadian Celiac Association on over 5,200 people with celiac disease, and we found that the average delay in diagnosis from the time they complained about symptoms till they got the right diagnosis was 12 years. So that's a long time. Now, some people got diagnosed sooner, and we had some that was 20 or 30 years later. I had an, an older lady who had started to develop symptoms after the birth of her last child, 
old. She was anemic and they just thought, oh, well, it's due to having kids. And they put her on iron supplements. And then she developed thyroid disease and bone problems and was just not well and lots of stomach issues. And it wasn't until her 70s that they diagnosed her. And unfortunately, that was another uh, sad case. She developed, uh, they diagnosed her with lymphoma and she passed away. So the message here is that if you feel you may have symptoms, and we should talk about that, what, how do I know whether I have celiac or not? Let's do that. Okay. Well, what's interesting about this disease, unlike diabetes where you're tired, you're thirsty, you're running to the bathroom, your blood sugars are high, pretty similar for most patients. But in celiac disease, people can have no symptoms. They can have subtle symptoms. They may have gastrointestinal symptoms, so abdominal pain, bloating, gas, diarrhea, or constipation. But they also could have um, the fatigue, bone and joint pain, muscle cramps, uh, their skin bruises easily, a skin rash that's real itching and blistery. They can have migraine, headaches, um, uh, just a, a depression, just a whole host of symptoms. So it makes it difficult because not everybody presents always the same way. So physicians don't always connect the dots. Is gluten inherently bad for everybody? No, for the vast majority of people, if you don't have the genes for celiac disease, if you don't have the DQ2 or DQ8 HAL uh, allele genes for celiac, then the majority of the people can eat gluten and it's just fine. But if you are the people that have celiac disease, that 1% to 2% of the population that have celiac, and now there's some new researchers showing that there is gluten sensitivity that's not celiac disease. Um, We don't believe it's an autoimmune disease and it may not be having the complications that we see with celiac, but they nevertheless still get sick when they eat gluten. And so those people need to also avoid gluten. But for the vast majority of people, gluten is fine. But can it affect people with uh, something like Crohn's, for example? Well, there have been some case reports of celiac and Crohn's coexisting, but um, it's not the diet of choice for Crohn's. Uh, It really, the gluten-free diet is designed for and is an absolute necessity for people with celiac disease. So do we know why people have taken this gluten-free diet and embraced it so dramatically in in such large numbers? Well, it was interesting. You know, Atkins used to be the buzz a number of years ago. And so then Atkins got replaced. It seemed to be gluten. And so the thing as a dietitian that we see is everybody... They're trying to make it a quick fix for what's 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 wrong with them. And so they, they tend to vilify it was this and then it was that and then gluten, you know. And so uh, I think people need to realize that all foods are generally healthy. I mean, you don't want to be eating a lot of, you know, fatty and salty and sugary foods. You want to make a diet of good, healthy foods. But um, to, to vilify one particular item is not the um, panacea to cure everything that ails you. So when you heard that clip from this on the Jimmy Kimmel show from this guy who says, well, the way it affects my body, and then the woman interrupts and says, well, no, what is gluten? And then he couldn't answer. Right. So is that a result of just bandwagon hopping? Absolutely. And, you know, as a, I have celiac disease as well, and I can tell you that over the years, um, you know, people didn't, when I my first book came out in 2001, and I'd say it's about celiac and gluten-free, people would give you the deer in the head-like look. Now, everybody goes, oh yeah, it's really bad for you, isn't it? And I said, no, if you don't have celiac disease, uh, then it, gluten is fine. But yeah, it's really been a bandwagon and all the celebrities and athletes, you'll be a better tennis player, you'll, you know, lose weight, it'll cure everything that ails you. Are there benefits to, if you to somebody who doesn't have celiac to not to having a gluten-free diet? Well, it's interesting because if you just replace um, regular um, brownies and cookies and and breads with gluten-free, that isn't going to necessarily make you healthier. In fact, many of the gluten-free products tend to be higher in starches and sugar and fat. In order to get them to stick together and make them taste decent, they often have more of those um, higher refined starches like white rice flour, potato, tapioca, and cornstarch. They're not enriched with iron and B 
vitamins like your wheat-based pastas and breads and cereals. So gluten-free is not inherently healthier. But what I tried to do in my book is help people that have to go gluten-free is what can you do to eat a healthy gluten-free diet? So you want to base it on lots of healthy gluten-free options. So naturally gluten-free foods, you know, um, lean meat, chicken, fish, poultry, um, nuts and seeds, uh, milk, yogurt, cheese, loads of fruits and veggies. And then you can substitute wheat, rye, and barley for some grains like quinoa, buckwheat, wild rice, um, uh, brown rice, uh, sorghum, millet, taff. You can use those grains as substitutes and also gluten-free oats, um, which are very healthy and high in uh, protein and fiber. So you want to make sure that you're substituting with healthier options, not just eating gluten-free cookies and and crackers and thinking you're going to be healthier. Shelly Case is our guest. She is a registered dietitian, uh, speaker, and author of Gluten-Free, the Definitive Resource Guide. She's on a cross-Canada speaking tour and is in Winnipeg. And Shelly... I guess, when are, when is your next speech here in Winnipeg, by the way? I actually just finished. I did a half-day workshop for dietitians yesterday and then did some TV today and uh, heading home. But then I'm going down to L.A. next week with 75,000 people to go look at the latest uh, new products on the market, uh, natural and health food, uh, gluten-free. So I have 3,000 booths to try and narrow down in three and a half days to try each your way for three and a half days to see. So that's where I'm going. And then I'll be speaking at the end of the month uh, doing a webinar. Has this uh, allergy to to gluten, has it always been there and it's just something that we, we learned about in recent years? Well, it's actually not an allergy. Uh, it's not like a peanut allergy where it's a different type of reaction. It's an autoimmune reaction. And when we talk mm. about autoimmune, it means the body starts attacking its own tissues in response to something. For example, multiple sclerosis, Crohn's, those are all autoimmune diseases, but we don't know what's causing it. But in celiac disease, we know that if you have these genes for celiac disease and you eat gluten, it causes this autoimmune reaction. You remove the gluten, it solves the problem. The villi, those the intestinal villi, regenerate, and you can actually then start absorbing your vitamins and minerals. So, you know, people have had it. It's just that we become more aware and looking for it because a lot of times people were told, well, you just have irritable bowel or chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or ulcers, or it's all in your head. Mm. You know, because people complain of so many different symptoms, um, they, you know, you go to see different specialists, my gut aches, my head aches, you know, my joints ache. So they send you off to different specialists and no one connects those dots to figure out, oh, maybe there is something connected here and it's gluten for well, people with celiac. Well, our GPs are so obsessed with, you know, the thing, the one thing that's bothering you most. And with this, it's more than one thing typically that gets aggravated. Well, in fairness to a GP, I mean, they have to be up on everything. And the problem with celiac disease, as I mentioned earlier, it's just people don't have all the same symptoms. So it's it's hard to, you know, um, pinpoint what that the problem is for people. Well, one of our uh, listeners is asking, um, can you ask your guest, how do you go about getting tested or diagnosed for whether or not you have celiac. That's an excellent question. First thing people need to know is don't jump on the gluten-free diet bandwagon first because if you go gluten-free and you eliminate gluten and then you go to take the blood screening test and then the intestinal biopsy, which is the definitive diagnosis test, those tests can be falsely negative because you have to actually have gluten in your system for those to tests to be accurate. So the first step is to see your family doctor and have them do the, the, the blood test. It's a screening test. It's a fairly good test 
test, but it doesn't pick up all cases. So the definitive way we diagnose is that we do a small intestinal biopsy. So you fast for 12 hours, they spray your throat with some anesthetic, put a scope and tube down into your intestine, take some pictures and pull a biopsy samples and then look to see if those villi and then the absorptive surfaces are damaged. And then that's how they make the definitive diagnosis. And then you go on the gluten-free diet, you need to see a registered dietitian because it's a tough diet to follow. And that's why I wrote the book. This is my fifth book uh, because it, as a dietitian, I've been in this business for a long time and I can tell you that this is the most difficult diet to follow because it's not just avoid bread and pasta. I mean, that gluten is in so many things, soups, sauces, salad dressings, uh, marinades, it's in um, uh, meat patties, it's in, it's in so many different foods, snack foods, chocolates. So you need to know what you're looking for. And so that's what I help people is to know what's allowed, what you definitely have to avoid, and what you might have to question when you see things on a food label. We've talked about truth in food labels. How helpful are food labels as it pertains to gluten-free they've and impro- how accurate are they've they? They've improved dramatically. I've been involved on the Canadian and Celiac Association Professional Advisory Board for years and we lobbied Health Canada to improve the regulations so that when people with food allergies and celiac disease, they would be able to pick up a package and know that if there was that uh, offending allergen or gluten source. So fortunately here in Canada, it's mandatory that manufacturers declare all the major allergen and gluten sources in the list of ingredients or at the end of the list of ingredients in what they call the contained statement, you know, contains wheat, contains milk. So that is very helpful for people with celiac but it's a big learning curve. And then not only do you have to um, be reading labels all the time and figuring out what you can and can't have, then it's how food is prepared and in the environment. And that's where my question comes in about when you're hosting a dinner party for 30 people, but you know there's that one person who's dealing with this. How do you make sure that you don't aggravate his or her symptoms? That's a great question. Um, I, what I usually tell people with celiac disease, if you're invited out to an event, is to take a dish with you that you, you know, offer to volunteer to bring something. So at the very least, you know you've got something safe to eat. And then if you know the, uh, the people that you're going to see, you can suggest, you know, ask them, what are they preparing? How are they preparing it? Oh, okay, you're doing steaks and you're putting a marinade on. Can you just leave mine, you know, without that? And then I can eat what everybody else is. You're doing a salad? Pull my stuff out before you throw the croutons on the dressing. And so there are some things that you can do to make it easy. But, you know, trying to uh, really focus on a lot of healthy um, items like your fruits and vegetables and having an option for a gluten-free guest, but or if you're really afraid, uh, then ask the guest to bring something. And, and those of us that have celiac, we're quite used to doing that. And you touched on cross-contamination. Yes. Okay, some things that if you're sharing a household with someone that's gluten-free and someone is not, the big thing I tell people is make sure you put all your gluten-free products up on the top shelf. Don't have the wheat flour um sitting on the top shelf and then the gluten-free things below because the flour dust comes down. You know, no double dipping. Margarine, butter, peanut butter, jams. Um, You need your separate container that's labeled gluten-free. Squeeze bottles of condiments. So again, no double dipping. Someone's doing wheat toast versus the gluten-free. You know, those are a few things. Pasta colanders. You know, the little wheat gets stuck in those little holes. So you need a separate colander, separate toaster. You know, those are a few things that you have to be concerned about. But as long as you wash most of your pots and pans very thoroughly, you know, you're good. But there's a few things like the sifter, the pasta colander, toaster, you need dedicated bread machine, etc. for gluten-free. Shelly Case, do you have a website? Yes, I do. It's Shelly Case, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y-C-A-S-E dot com. Shelly Case is a registered dietitian. 
speaker and author of Gluten-Free, The Definitive Resource Guide. And once again, you can get more information on Shelly at ShellyCase.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm Brett McGarry. He is Greg Mackling. Just wanted to let you know we're, we've taken a number of calls uh, from folks on Garvin Road that there are fire trucks that appear to be putting out a fire at a Hutterite colony by Beausajour. So that's about all the information that we have is just anecdotal and we are trying to get contact information on exactly what is happening. So thank you for the tips at 204-780-6868, as well as to our newsroom at 786-6868. Make sure you don't get the, the two confused. 780 is for calling into us on the air, and 786-6868 is the number to the newsroom. Speaking of calling us here on the air, as I block the line. You're so slick. <laughs> You're slick. What's going on? Oh, here's another text here just to follow up describing this fire on Garvin saying it's massive fire departments and RCMP from every direction and closed towns. So um, if you happen to be in the area and you have stopped, maybe if you can get a picture and send that to us, we if it's provided it's safe for you to do so, uh, we would very much appreciate that at 204-780-6868. Now, we have a number of prizes to give away today, and we'll do some next hour, I think. But in the meantime, Greg, you have we were give, gifted a pair of tickets. We were something. a pair of tickets to the Late Night Gala for the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, April 3rd to the 9th. And this takes place at Pantages Theatre, even though it's presented by our friends at Club Regent. It is at Pantages Theatre. It starts late in the evening, I believe 9.15 is the time on the tickets. What's the date for that one? Is I it believe April, that's uh, the Friday is April, 7th? Uh, April the 7th, I believe. Uh, Jeff Forche, that's correct. I got the thumbs up okay. from Jeff Forche <laughs> manning the controls on the other side of the glass for us here today. And he would be the gentleman that you speak to when you answer the question, who was our guest earlier this week? The founder, essentially, and the promotional artistic director yeah there we go artistic director how do you remember that because i had to type it into the podcast if you want to listen to the interview once again you can just simply download the mackling and mcgarry podcast on uh, google play or itunes the artistic director 16 years running Mm -hmm. who was our guest who is that individual and you will get the tickets to the late night gala on April the 7th at Pantages Theatre. It's part of the annual Winnipeg Comedy Festival. Phone lines are now open, 204-780-6868, if you'd like to go to that gala on us. So there you go, 204-780-6868. What was the name of our guest on the Winnipeg Comedy Festival? Uh, Maybe one of our favorite guests that we've ever had, by the way. Just uh, tremendous fun, so that was... A good time. How can people find a, that podcast, by the way? Uh, they can just go to iTunes, Google Play, look for Mackling and McGarry. And it's uh, we've just started uploading pretty much the entire show as of a couple of days ago. So Tuesday would have been the first one for the full podcast that you can get on Google Play and iTunes. And we're getting a couple of pictures here from Susan at 204-780-6868. Thank you very much for that, Susan, from this fire. And wow. There's one photo here where there's a there's a number of uh, construction vehicles like uh, dump trucks and etc. and that are just 
the the vehicles aren't on fire, but the black smoke coming out of a structure behind it is incredible. So thank you for sending us these pics, Susan. She has sent us uh, three pictures. So just a heads up to our colleagues in the newsroom. Those pictures are available at uh, 204-780-6868. And no, Will, the uh, the answer to the question is not Alexander Micklethwaite. That was not our guest in the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. That would be the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. And uh, if you want to see some outstanding ballet, Jeff Courier went last night. They are presenting an Elton John ballet. And that's ironic because I have a clip here from Elton John. What do I say when it's all over? Siren seems to be the hardest word. Why is it so hard to say sorry, Brett Gary? <laughs> it's so sad. It is hard. I agree, Elton. It is a sad, sad situation. A Halifax woman is in fact suing Air Canada over, and here's the quote, really upsetting experience. Okay. A woman who recently moved to Halifax said she's suing Air Canada partly over an incident in which she had to choose between potentially sitting several rows away from her three-year-old daughter on a plane or missing the flight. Mm-hmm. Nobody seemed interested in helping us at all, and it was really upsetting, said Nicole Payne. The incident happened December 14th, 2016 at Vancouver International Airport. Payne was moving from British Columbia to Nova Scotia and was scheduled for a 1 p.m. flight that connected in Toronto. She got to the airport with her family about 11.30 a.m., but Air Canada had no agents there free to help them as they waited in line, according to a notice of claim filed on February 22nd in small claims court of uh, Nova Scotia. Pardon me. The seats were booked next to each other, said Payne. We were guaranteed by at least two staff members that we would indeed make the flight about 12 p.m. The family was attended to by an agent, but Payne said the agent couldn't check them in and eventually told them that the flight had ended the check-in period. They were subsequently booked on another flight that would depart at 2 p.m. the same day. Payne was accompanied by her twin newborns, daughter and mother. The newborns would be carried by Payne and her mother on the flight. She said her family was only able to board last due to being told they were on standby. And it was then that they realized they'd been booked in seats 24J, 33K and 38J. Wow. While there was the possibility that passengers may have moved to let the family sit together, Payne said she couldn't take the risk. You never know what's going to happen on a flight, especially in the winter. If I didn't have access to my other baby and he couldn't feed for five hours, I couldn't do that. Payne also said it wouldn't be fair to have a three-year-old sit next to a stranger. The family was put in a hotel for the night, paid for by the airline, and got on a flight the next day. They're seeking $2,400, $800 per seat, arguing it's in line with the airline's domestic tariff rule, plus costs, according to the notice. A statement to Global News from Air Canada spokesperson Isabel Arthur said, as you must surely understand, it would be inappropriate for us to comment as the matter is before the courts. Yeah, so customer service. It's a problem sometimes. You don't get the service you're looking for. 
airlines in particular. Grind your gears? There's, well, here's the problem with airlines. And, and again, I have worked in the airline industry before I worked in a call center. So there are two, there are some things, there are some forces working against each other here. One, air travel, as convenient and wonderful as it is, <laughs> nobody likes doing it. So everybody's, generally speaking, most people are cranky about going through the process. And is like whether it's being on hold for an hour, trying to get through to the airline, or whether you're standing in a long line, everybody's cranky. So as a result, the people who work for the airline are also often cranky, and I'm not suggesting that's a good thing. As a former employee, I was one of those cranky employees, and I, when I look back on that time, I, I look back almost with shame at how poor a worker I was because I would I, people would call, but it's hard. When people call and the first thing out of their mouth is, I've been on hold for an hour and a half, and you deal with that for eight hours, it's hard to keep a that would keep be a exhausting attitude. without it, question. So I don't I don't miss that job, but I wish that I had done a better job of it. But in this particular situation, you know, sometimes if the, if the, the looks like the airline tried to do what they could by booking them, well, we can't confirm you on this flight at two o'clock, but we'll put you on standby, which means if the seats are available, then we'll give you the seats. So they. At least on the surface here, it looks like they tried to do what they could, but that wasn't good enough, so they put them up in a in a hotel. So I don't know. It I, sounds I actually, like this woman arrived at the airport way early in order to ensure that she got what she was requesting in terms of seat assignments, mm-hmm. and there was nobody around to help her. Yeah, that and that is that's the problem. If there is no, if you get there because for a domestic flight. I think, what do they ask you now? You should be... I like think if it's 90 minutes now. Is it 90 minutes even? I think so. For flying Because I think Canada? at 45 minutes, like, boom, done, it's done. I haven't been on a flight in a if few years If you haven't checked now. in by 45 minutes, it's it's done. So mm. uh, I believe it's 90 minutes is what they'd like. Okay. And you kind of have that window from 90 to, to 45 to complete everything. Okay. So I guess we want to know, essentially, we wanted to use this as a springboard for a conversation into customer service issues. What are your thoughts on customer service? I guess do you have, is the question then, Greg, have you undergone an experience where you feel like, or is the question, why is it so hard to say sorry? I think it's why is it so hard to say sorry. I think that would have gone an awful long way, although I agree with you. In this case, it sounds like Air Canada did a, Pretty good job in terms of trying to make up for their mistake. Yeah, because they 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 put them up in the hotel. It, it, who, we don't know what the situation was. Why were there no agents there to check them in? So that that is really unfortunate. Based on what I'm seeing here, it looks like they tried to make up for their mistake. But I also understand. I, I would be outraged if I was this person who showed up early, did as instructed, and still got kind of hosed here. So 204-780-6868. Of course, Gabor Lukacs uh, is, is essentially, I, I almost want to use the word famous air passenger rights advocate. I would is, say that would be accurate, Is actually. helping the family with the claim. He sort of made a living out of being a passenger rights advocate. Uh, the airlines hate him. So <laughs> yes, your thoughts, 204-780-6868 on customer service. Why do you think it's hard to say sorry? So many companies... They'll, 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 in this case, they made good, but I don't know. Did they, did they say sorry? There's also a story circulating from Winnipeg of a couple 
who took a taxi cab to the Winnipeg airport. They were going to Montreal, ended up missing their flight. The taxi cab broke down three times, once in the driveway and two other times. And it wasn't until the third time that another cab was actually called. In fact, it was the passengers themselves that called the other cab. And really what they're looking for is an apology, an acknowledgement that things weren't handled correctly. And it just, like I said, it just feels like it's getting more difficult. I don't know if people think they're going to be held responsible in some sort of litigation. If sorry is an admittance of guilt of some sort, just want to know why is it so difficult just to get an apology and just a little, you know what? Show me that you care. Show me that you're going to go to the extra mile and you're going to go a little bit further to make me feel as though you're trying to make it right. I remember, well, you know what? And I'll tell you a story after your forecast about Santa Lucia, where a few years ago we had something, we had a situation there and they went, I would, I would say well beyond what we ever would have expected for, to make it right, to make sure that we remain Santa Lucia customers. So good for them. I will uh, allow you, in fact, encourage you, allow you, because I could prevent you from telling <laughs> that story. That's my place in this relationship. <laughs> Brett, I will encourage you to share that story when we come back, following the update on weather, and also we'll share one of the most legendary customer service stories of all time. It involves Nordstrom's and... Tires. Yes, tires and Nordstrom's. How do they connect? We'll tell you when we come back. It's 247 Mackling and McGarry. Talking about customer service going above and beyond to keep you as a guest, as a customer, a satisfied customer. And Brett McGarry, uh, some of the best pizza in town comes from Santa Lucia. Was that the location uh, just up, I guess at, at that point at St. Mary's, the one just off the bridge? Sure. And the flagship store, some may call it. Yeah, it's a nice restaurant. And we, this was, we're going like back five years now, at least maybe six. Was there with my then girlfriend and a couple of my friends and their kids. And no, actually, no, the kids weren't there because we were sitting in the lounge. Yes, that's right. So we're with the, it's just the four of us. And we were sitting in the lounge and we are maybe 10 feet from the fridge, like we're sitting right beside the bar, and I can see the beer fridge. I could have easily just got up, gotten up, and gone and picked up the beer and come back. Well, but you know, of course, you don't do that. You ask your server. That's good that you know that. And so we asked the server, and she says, "Do you need a drink?" And we say, "Yeah." And I had we waited like 10, 15 minutes for our drinks, and there were not a lot of people in the room in the lounge. There were maybe, I don't know, I want to say three or four other tables. Now. I'm not a server. I don't know what the skills involved, but my girlfriend at the time was a bartender and a server, and I have seen her handle at a patio with like 30 tables on her own and completely dominate it. Wow. So when you can't handle three or four tables, it takes you 10, 15 minutes to bring me my beer. Something's up. So I, and we were we were all sort of irked about it. So I emailed Santa Lucia. I got the, the contact information and I sent them a note and said, listen, I like like this restaurant, but this service is completely unacceptable. When I can see the beer and I'm looking at it and it takes her that long to get me my beer, that's wrong. And so they, they invited us back and paid for our dinner. And then while we were enjoying our free dinner and the drinks were not supposed to be paid for as well. The family, there was a table beside us that they were having some sort of a problem with the staff 
so I guess in a in a way to make sure that that didn't taint our experience, they came back and said, "We're paying for your whole bill tonight, by the way," which I really appreciated. They just wanted to make sure that this someone else's negative experience didn't ruin our sort of return experience. So is that the pacifier a lot of people are looking for? When I was in the biz, uh, you always had to be conscientious of people that were looking for free food, right? Because there are people who will make up scenarios in order to get free stuff. And that's always a concern. But you can usually shush those things out. You can usually find out who's up to shenanigans and who's not. But is that, as a customer, you're preferred way to be pacified and to to be apologized to is is with that sort of apology that has you know food and or drink attached to it in a restaurant situation uh, not necessarily I just I was just looking for acknowledgement right and the fact that they invited us back I thought wow thank you that's really nice of you and then the fact that they went one step further and paid for our entire bill was completely unexpected and but very much appreciated that says that says to me, listen, we are we care that you had a bad experience and we'd want you to have a good experience and you're here on our invitation and you're witnessing something bad happening and I can't even remember what the situation was. I think the customers beside us were being unreasonable, but whatever. Uh, but they So they went well above and beyond. So I, that says to me, they care. I will continue to be a customer of Santa Lucia. That was my question. And the Nordstrom story. Perhaps you've heard this. It's absolutely legendary. Whether it's true or not, not even Snopes, the famous website that digs down and vets these sorts of stories, can determine for sure whether or not it's true. But it goes something like this, and I'll do it real quick because I know we're coming up to the 3 o'clock news, Brett. Part of the reason that Nordstrom is legendary for its customer service stems back to what's known in the service industry as the tire story. What's the tire story? This is from the uh, Star Tribune in Minneapolis, by the way. What is the tire story? Many years ago, a customer rolled a pair of tires into a Nordstrom store and asked for his money back. Nordstrom has never sold tires, and the guy did not produce any kind of receipt, but legend has it that the guy was given a full refund. Truth or urban legend is the question. Eric and Blake Nordstrom, co-presidents for the Nordstrom retail stores, both say it is a true story. Blake Nordstrom said that the return occurred in the mid-1970s in one of the Fairbanks, Alaska stores. What makes the story less far-fetched is the fact that Nordstrom had purchased three stores in Alaska from Northern Commercial Company, which did sell tires. We turned the auto store into a men's store, so when the customer rolled the tires into the store, he had a reason to believe that he had gotten tires from that store. Nordstrom isn't sure how many tires were returned or the amount of the refund, but he commended the salesperson who accepted the tires and gave the customer a refund. He used great judgment, Nordstrom said. He treated the customer like he would want to be treated. That's crazy. <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories of all time, true or not. Craig and Brett with you. Keeping an eye on Washington, D.C. at the Department of Justice, the Attorney General of the United States, Jeffrey Sessions, is about to address the media on the questions about his contact. What sort of contact did he have with Russia during the presidential uh, election and during the campaign? 
In the meantime, we, we mentioned, I just mentioned the Mid Canada Boat Show. It's it has begun at the RBC Convention Center. I'm actually going to be there on Saturday morning with my new friends at Alumacraft. So we thought we would just sort of touch base as the Mid Canada Boat Show gets underway with Andrew Klopak. He is the representative. Canada for Alumacraft. Did I say your name correctly, Andrew, by the way? Is it Klopak? Yeah, you did. Okay. Yes, you did. Sure, <laughs> right. Very good, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, Mid-Canada Boat Show, it's one of those signs that happier times are ahead in terms of the weather. So I guess this must be an exciting day for you. Well, spring is uh, soon to be in the air. I mean, it was a pretty cool morning this morning, but uh, we're looking for a real nice forecast. And I think it's because of the boat show that the weather is playing in our favor, so everybody can get excited about thinking about getting out on the water soon. So you've got three dealers at the show featuring Alumacraft fishing boats. I guess tell us a little bit about uh, one of the, or maybe Girton Equipment, for example. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to be working with three high-quality dealers uh, representing our Alumacraft uh, boat company brand. And Girton Equipment has a very nice display. They all do, as a matter of fact. And you'll see over 35 Alumacraft boats on display here. Uh, it has quickly become the number one growing boat brand in Canada. And if uh, you want to get down and check out the three dealerships, uh, they have a lot of nice product for everybody to see. And then you also have Luke's Town Service in Eli. Correct, yes. And they've got a full lineup as well. Um, each one of them carry uh, different brands of outboards, so there's your choice and opportunity to uh, to make the decision you want in your favor with the product that they offer. And then finally, I mean, a lot of people who go into cottage country from Winnipeg and southern Manitoba find themselves in Ontario, Kenora, for example. Lots of uh, Winnipeggers head out to Kenora on weekends in the summertime, and uh, you're partnered up with Wood Lake Marine. Right, and that's one of the best uh, servicing dealers you'll find out in that area. Uh, we're really pleased to have a relationship with Woodlake representing Alumacraft. So Saturday, you have something called the Celebrity Cook-Off that is happening at the Mid-Canada Boat Show. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's actually each and every day of the show. So it starts today at 7 o'clock, and it'll run again uh, Friday, tomorrow at 7. And then Saturday, there's two sessions, one at 12, one at 4, and then another one on Sunday at 1. And what the Celebrity Cook-Off is, it's a an event and initiative sponsored by Alumacraft to help educate um, uh, all the attendees on proper cooking of fish. So, so they'll actually teach everybody how to fillet a fish properly and then prepare it for the table. And there's a competition amongst the two competing uh, cooks at the event. So it's a little bit of fun. And, and for the most part, it's just a bunch of entertainment and a lot of excitement, but education goes with it as well. While you're there in the audience attending, you will get samples. The convention center will be preparing some fish nuggets for everybody to taste. And those that choose uh, to have some wine, we have Copper Moon wine being served as well. So it's, um, it's, and it's a free, once you're in the show, you can attend and watch this uh, feature without any further cost to you. Um, so good education, good entertainment, some free fish and some free wine. And you mentioned that uh, the interest in this continues to grow into fishing and getting a boat. Why do you think that is? Why is it growing so quickly at this point? 
Well, you know, it's just a fun, healthy sport. And just with everything on going on in, in today's world, um, being close with family and out on the water is probably one of the most relaxing and enjoyable things you can do. And everybody loves to catch fish and, and knowing how to prepare it just takes it that much further. So it brings some excitement to, hey, I'm going to get out on the water, go fishing, catch something. I'm going to be able to bring it home and now prepare it for myself or my family. And, you know, that's a, a nice little treat. All right. Andrew Klopak, thank you so much for joining us today. We will leave it there and we'll see you on Saturday. I will be at the Mid-Canada Boat Show with Alumacraft. Andrew Klopak is the Alumacraft representative for Canada. And again, there are three Alumacraft booths at the show. Luke's Town Service, they're based out of Eli, Woodlake Marine in Kenora, and Girton Equipment here in Winnipeg at 35 Melnick Road. Is that one more thing we have to do together this summer? Go on a on a boat? Go on a boat. <laughs> Get on a boat. And do a little fishing. <laughs> and say hello to Poseidon. <laughs> we can do that. I'd like to do that with you. Sounds I like have, fun. I haven't gone fishing since I was a, a child, so I suspect it'd be a much different and perhaps a better experience now. I prefer to fish without a hook, because then that way I don't have to take a fish off the hook. Should I be, quote unquote, fortunate enough to catch the fish? <laughs> Not my thing. <laughs> what do you do? Just like a bear, just reach into the river and swat at it? Oh no, I, I prefer all the on boat activities that go along with with the fishing. <laughs> I don't need to catch anything. I'll let all my buddies do the catching. Developing story out of Washington. Jeff Sessions, Attorney General of the United States, is recusing himself from Russia investigations. Uh, suggestions that he had discussions with. Russia and representatives of the Russian government during the presidential campaign. He was asked about that in his uh, in his uh, hearings to become the attorney general. He addressed quite specifically at the beginning of his news conference in Washington moments ago the idea that he, in fact, uh, answered the question put forward by Minnesota. Uh, Senator Al Franken, in a truthful fashion, uh, here's uh, a little bit of that. Let me be clear. I never had meetings with Russian operatives or Russian intermediaries about the Trump campaign. And the idea that I was part of a, quote, continuing exchange of information during the campaign between Trump surrogates and intermediaries for the Russian government is totally false. Um, that is the question that Senator Franken asked me uh, at the hearing, and that's what got my attention as he noticed it, noted it was uh, the first, it just breaking news. And it got my attention, and that is the question I responded to. I did not respond by referring to the two meetings, one very brief after a speech, and one with two of my senior staffers, professional staffers, uh, with the Russian ambassador in Washington, where no such things were discussed. In my reply to the question, my reply to the question of Senator Franken was honest and correct as I understood it at the time. I appreciate that some have taken the view that this was a false comment. That is not my intent. That is not correct. I will write the Judiciary Committee soon, today or tomorrow, to explain this testimony for the record. Secondly, at my confirmation hearing, I promised 
that I would do this. If a specific matter arose where I believed my impartiality might reasonably be questioned, I would consult with the department ethics officials regarding the most appropriate way to proceed, close quote. That's what I told them at the confirmation here. I have been here just three weeks today. A lot has been happening uh, in this three-week period. I wish I'd had more of my staff on board, but we're still waiting for confirmation for them. Uh, much has been done, much needs to be done, and, but I did and have done as I promised. I have met with senior officials shortly after arriving here. We evaluated the rules of ethics and recusal. I have and based on time, I'll stop the tape there and tell you that Jeff Session has recused himself from Russia investigations as they proceed into his conduct during the presidential election in the United States. Would you have ever imagined... I mean, okay, let me rephrase that question because just as I, <laughs> as those words come out of my mouth, I think, yeah, the the answer is probably yes. I'm sure everybody imagined that it would be a little bit interesting, but it just, I don't, I can't recall a presidency in such, it's in such infancy to have been just this sort of merry-go-round of the word that comes to mind is lunacy. This is uh, unusual. I Cannot say that I've followed any presidency as closely as I've followed this one based on the job that we're doing now, uh, but it does seem unusual and we need not, uh, you know, really look too far further back than the presidential campaign itself. It was one for the ages. The result was one that many had not predicted or anticipated. So I'm not sure why we're surprised that the first month of the presidency has gone the way it has. We'll definitely keep an eye on this one. I just pressed a button on the phone again. Uh-oh. It says block all. <laughs> okay. That must mean we're going to give away some more tickets, this time to Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. I'm sleepless night down in the laundry mat, watching the clothes. One of the cool things about the various giveaways we do here is sometimes we like I, I don't know much about this band I didn't even realize Tom Wilson from Junkhouse is their singer and hearing his softer side of his voice it's almost angelic Greg so I need to investigate more of Blackie and the Rodeo Kings they're playing Burton Cummings Theatre this Saturday March 4th we have two pairs of tickets to give away today to the two people who can answer this question Blackie and the Rodeo Kings is the name of the band, but that name is inspired by the name of a song and an album by another Canadian singer. Who is that singer? 204-780-6868 is the number to call. Again, the name Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, what is it inspired by? It's inspired by the name of a song and album by another Canadian singer. Who is that singer? 204-780-6868. The 11th annual gala in support of TJ's Gift Foundation comes up this May, and it's hard to believe that it's the 11th annual. It feels like just yesterday, the third annual, which would have been the first time I spoke to uh, you or your late husband, Floyd, Karen. Uh, thank you for taking some time with us from the airport. I think you're in Saskatoon today, correct? I am. Thank you very much for taking uh, taking my call. I'm 
in Saskatoon at the uh, Victims Advisory Committee, which is an advisory committee to the Parole Board and Correctional Services Canada. So, yeah, so I'm on my way home. Well, we uh, love the work that you do, Karen, and we wanted to uh, get the word out just as soon as we could on this year's gala. Maybe you can tell us where it is and how people can get tickets, and then we'll talk a little bit about TJ's gift. Oh, super. Thank you so much. Yes, the gala's on May the 18th, and it's going to be at Canada Inns Polo Park. Um, Tickets are available from me or on our website. If you get them on our website, it's uh, www.tjsgift.com. Or uh, you can call me. Um, I give my cell phone number out. People tell me I'm stupid for doing that. But, you know, I've never gotten any crank calls. So (laughs) uh, my cell phone number is 204-228-2540. Or you can email me at Karen with a K uh, at tjsgift.com and get tickets that way. So what is this? gala celebrate i know uh the life of your late son is right at the top of the list but uh his his legacy and and the things that you've done for the community in his honor and his memory uh have really taken on a life of their own is that fair to say uh absolutely um tj uh died 14 years ago now and uh, tj's gift was created in his uh, honor to help kids make safe choices to avoid drug involvement so our gala that we have in May is our one fundraiser through the year. That's the only way we raise money except uh, for donations, of course, but we are not funded by any agencies. And, uh, and we raise our money and it goes back to schools to help kids, help other kids uh, stay away from drugs. We do a, a, a whole whack of things with that. We provide funding for projects that kids do. Um, we, we are uh, in April going to be doing our rocking for Choices uh, concert series in the schools where we go out to a school with a band and do a, a mini concert and talk about TJ and being safe, making safe choices to avoid drug involvement. And, um, you know, we do a variety of things that that are all geared towards helping kids to be safe. Karen, why is it called TJ's Gift? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's uh, one of my friends, Bobby H.A., uh, Bobby Typher, actually, um, gave us that name. We were in the very beginning stages trying to think of what we would call our foundation. And, and she said, well, you know, what this foundation is going to be helping kids all over Manitoba. It's like a gift. So why don't we call it TJ's Gift? And it is it's TJ's Gift to kids uh, across the province to help them be safe. TJ's story is a cautionary tale for young people of today. Fair to say, Karen? Absolutely, absolutely. TJ uh, actually did not die because of drugs. TJ died because of uh, choices uh, from people that he met in the drug world. And um, it's one of the big messages that I have for kids is that, you know, people that are involved with drugs, um, their friends are their drugs. Um, They're not your friends. They're not your family. Uh, they may think they are, they may say they are, but when push comes to shove, uh, the drugs are a lot more important than you are. And in TJ's case, that's exactly what happened. He was killed because of his friendship with a young woman, and uh, a young man felt that he was empowered enough that he could cause TJ to be killed, and he was successful in doing it. Karen, we just have a moment or two, but uh, I mentioned uh, Floyd off the, the top, and he was such a cheerleader for this. He did such incredible work. How's it been carrying on this legacy without him at your side? Um, it's lonely. 
I'll tell you that right now. It's lonely, and I'm trying to think of everything and cover all the bases myself. I have a fabulous board that supports me very well, and my kids support me very well. So, you know, I, I'm uh, not completely alone, but, uh, you know, Floyd was a big part of everything to do with victim rights and supporting um, kids, you know, as they were trying to avoid gang and, and drugs. And uh, in the province, he was well known across Canada for his work for, on behalf of victims. And and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's challenging, but the work isn't going away. Unfortunately, the problems aren't going away. And uh, until there's no more kids doing drugs, you know, TJ's gift is going to be going. And what were you doing in Saskatoon today? Because this ties into to the work that uh, you and Floyd have done for years. Uh, yes, I, yes, I'm sitting on a, a committee that's called the Victims Advisory Committee to the Parole Board and to Correctional Services Canada. And this, this is a group of people from uh, and the Prairie region. region. We are, there's several regions where the Prairie region. There's a group of people that come from across the prairies to talk about issues for victims in dealing with parole uh, services and dealing with the courts and the jails and so on and so forth. And we advocate for people. We educate the public. Uh, we talk about the problems and the issues that are ongoing and trying to find solutions and support for people. So it's a huge, uh, hugely important endeavor and uh, one I'm very grateful to be able to be a part of. Well, your voice is extremely valuable, Karen. We appreciate you lending it uh, to our radio station this afternoon. TJ's Gift Foundation, the 11th Annual Gala, May 18th at Canada's Polo Park. You can get tickets online, tjsgift.com, or you can email Karen at tjsgift.com, or you can give her a call, 204-228-2540. Helping kids find the leadership pardon me, skills that they need to be able to choose a drug-free life. Karen Weeb, once again, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 3.50 in the afternoon. Brett McGarry craving 5 o'clock. <laughs> 5 o'clock? What? Well, that's when you oh. can actually, that's when you're allowed to have a beer. But it's 5 o'clock <laughs> somewhere right now. Yeah, it really is. Oh, that's the song. It's 5 o'clock question. in Halifax right now. Is it 5 o'clock in Halifax? Yeah, for in sure fact, it is. It oh, it's more than 5. Yeah. 10 to 6, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's get drinking, catching up there, Brett. No kidding. We gotta, we gotta put uh, some speed on that. What's going on this afternoon? I know there's uh, lots you've been chasing in the newsroom this afternoon. I think one of our more unusual stories out of Lethbridge. We don't often go there, but we will speak to a global news reporter there. This story dates back um, decades, actually. Imagine not having just one child go missing, but you have two, and. Then some 30 years later, they are discovered to be alive and well, um, hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles away, and just decided to take a break from the family. So that crazy story, we'll lay that all out for you a little bit later on this afternoon out of Lethbridge. That's Julie Buckingham, Richard Cloutier. This is one of those days where you're getting a real big hint as to what's coming in Manitoba as far as the budget is concerned on April 11th circle that day because in the lead up to it today we got a real snapshot of how fundamental uh how many fundamental changes that we're going to see in this document and uh as taxpayers you're going to see a lot of shifting in program spending i've been telling you folks about health care for the last month now and we got more hints today as to what's to come as far as health care depending on your perspective it means cuts 
and job losses perhaps in some areas, even though the Premier has said that there will not be losses for frontline services. But I think without doubt we're looking at restructuring. We have uh, full coverage of that. Uh, A one-on-one interview with the finance minister that no one else has. And he gives some big hints as to some of the one in 25-year decisions that they are making over at the Manitoba legislature. So we'll have that for you exclusively following the 4.30 News. Is that critical politicking as you lead up to something like what you're calling a generational-type budget, Richard, to start soft-selling what we can anticipate in anticipation of the budget itself? Final decisions haven't been made, uh, and sometimes uh, when you have an April 11th budget, they're going to be making decisions on April 9th and April 10th. But uh, if this government has the courage of their convictions, we're going to see significant changes in health care. We'll tell you more about that coming up on the news. And your chance to win KD yes. Lang tickets will take you back to 1992 with some business How are you going to do that exactly, take us back to 1992? Because if we're going back to 1992, I won't be at work tomorrow, just for the record. If it's going back to that specific year, uh, I won't be here some tomorrow. Some business stories from that year. Okay, sounds great. And big hair. Richard yes. Cloutier, Julie Buckingham, thank you so much. They'll have much more from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB. Just on that subject, uh, they've got tickets to give away for Katie Lang. we got to tell you who we are giving our tickets away to. We had Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, two pair of tickets for the show coming up on Saturday at the Burton Cummings Theatre. And the question was, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings is the name of the band but that name is inspired by the name of a song and album by another Canadian singer. Who is that singer? And the answer is Willie P. Bennett. Blackie and the Rodeo King, but they were just good friends. So congratulations to Rob Pisecki and Robbie Dahlman. We're going to see Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. And then we uh, had uh, tickets to give away for the Comedy Festival. That's right. The Late Night Gala. Arlene Arlen won those tickets. And we'll have another pair of tickets for each contest and each uh, show tomorrow, Brett, as we... It's Friday tomorrow. And the question uh, for the the Comedy Festival was just who was our guest on the subject. And it was the artistic director, Lara Ray. So thanks for joining us. And as Greg said, we have more, more stuff to give away tomorrow. We'll probably have to give away the Blackie and the Rodeo Kings tickets early tomorrow. That's right. Concert is tomorrow night. Saturday night. Oh, Saturday. Sorry. But still, you got to be Sorry, here. It's Saturday. It's Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. But you got to be here early on uh, Friday to get or before 4.30 at least to pick them up. So we'll do that early tomorrow. I'm Brett. He's Greg. Jeff Forte, Master Control. Thank you very much, sir. The news is up next.